You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Accounted For. This is the podcast on a mission to expand your perspectives, have you question the status quo, and get you inspired for action for your own career. The podcast is part of OMD Ventures, my greater platform that is continuously changing and getting updated. And if you'd like to find out more about what it is, as well as a way to get more involved, just go to omdventures.com and there's various ways for you to get involved with the community, like signing up for the weekly newsletter to really be on top of everything I'm doing. Um, the newsletter is actually evolving, and so the current version now actually includes more of a weekly update on top of all of the various content material as well. So I should go through kind of what actually happens, happened in the week, uh, as well as in how I'm planning to grow the platform itself. And so, yeah, that's just a better way for you to get connected with me. And also, I'm starting to take questions um, to do a separate AMA, like an Ask Me Anything episode. So just go to omdventures.com slash contact, or there's a separate reach out tab when you go to the website. Use that to send your questions my way, and I'll f- record a separate episode to actually answer your questions. So that's the way for me to get more involved with you, my listeners. Okay, so to the main event today. Our guest today is Henry Shi. He is the co-founder and CTO, the chief technology officer of Snap Travel. As the name implies, Snap Travel is a travel company headquartered in Toronto that creates a seamless experience for you to book your hotel accommodations through easy instant messaging apps like Facebook and WhatsApp. So I've personally tried using it. You just practically go on their website, snaptravel.com, and you just pick whichever messaging tool you want to use. I use Facebook Messenger, so I use that. And you're practically talking to like an AI bot and it finds hotel deals for you. So that was pretty cool. So I I use that to swift through the various options for my upcoming travels. So yeah, check it out. Um, but the podcast is focused on Henry. So Henry and Snap Travel really uh, made the news, I'd say. Well, they made like the, new ra- the news rounds when they raised their Series A round with Golden State's Steph Curry. I think that was just all over my LinkedIn feed. And another thing was Henry's acceptance into the Forbes 30 under 30 list, both very big accomplishments. And I think that really put Snap Travel in my, uh, my front view mirror for sure. And I think Snap Travel's story itself has actually been very fascinating because the company is Henry's third startup company after he created two others while at the University of Waterloo's uh, the Velocity Student Incubator and Canada's Next, Next 36 program. So after his first two startups, Henry actually decided to take a startup sabbatical by getting a low-stress job at Google, something it n- not many people really refer to as a sabbatical. But in our conversation, we actually go through the kind of decision-making process Henry had for actually choosing to go to work at Google instead of going to start his third startup immediately, as well as the various learnings he has had throughout the first two companies that he has started and how he actually took all that into creating Snap Travel as well. And then we actually go into talking about the early years of starting Snap Travel, like actually 
what was the process like finding a co-founder what was the process like going through product market fit or even just deciding how to even start a company where do you start with all that and how the idea even came about and then at throughout the actual conversation and near the end as well we actually touch upon the major mental model that Henry uses for many of his decision making that I found very fascinating and very enjoyable and so without further ado here is my conversation with Henry Hey everyone, welcome to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Henry Shi. Hey Henry, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. No problem. Henry here is the co-founder and the chief technology officer of Snap Travel. And so Snap Travel is a company, a travel company that has more than 50 people in three different countries. But Henry, for people who aren't familiar with the company, can you help us understand what you guys do and where you're based out of, out of the three countries? I'm sure. So Snap Travel is a chatbot that helps customers get really good hotel recommendations and deals all over messaging. So there's no website, there's no app to download. You talk to our bot over Messenger, WhatsApp, Slack, iMessage, etc. Think of it as your virtual travel assistant and the bot will understand what you say, source the web as well as our own deals to give you the best recommendations and the best prices for your hotel trip, uh, for your hotel stay. That's kind of what we do in a nutshell. We have people in Toronto that head up quarters with our product engineering team and business team as well. And then we have a team in the Philippines for customer service. It's about 60 to 70 people right now. And then we have a few folks in Europe and and, um, uh, Turkey for our supply team. So getting great inventory and hotel inventory. Oh, okay. When you, when you said supply, I was thinking, but what, what do you guys actually have in supply? It's not like you own the actual properties, right? So when you say supply, like hotel inventory. Yeah, then, it's like contracts, oh. sourcing deals, and discounted con- contracts and hotels, yes. Is there a reason why it's in Turkey? Is that like the hub? Uh, Europe actually is the hub. So uh, I was just in uh, Palma de Mallorca, uh, Spain, for work uh, last week. So uh, Palma is an island off the coast of Spain, and it's actually like the Silicon Valley for travel. Um, yeah, this island has probably got like half a million people and all the travel uh, travel tech and travel companies are there. Uh, some of the you know, multi-billion dollar companies on this island. And uh, if, if, for those of you who don't know, it's kind of like the Cancun for Europe. So a lot of people go there for the beach, the sun, and it's a great, uh, super, I guess, tourist-heavy spot. And because of that, uh, this sort of bubble of tourism and travel, travel tech emerged on this island. So that's why we have people in Spain, because a lot of people there speak Spanish. And it's uh, from this sort of uh, regional development. And then uh, Middle East as well. Middle East is a huge market. And um, our, we knew somebody there who happened to be in, in Turkey. And then we kind of just started working together. And it, yeah, and she covers our other sort of Middle Eastern and other, uh, I guess, European markets. Wow, that's that's fascinating. I had no idea about that. Like, it's, it seems so, I don't know, I guess if you're in the travel industry, it's a very obvious thing. But for someone like, like I, I travel a lot, like I, and I love travel. But yeah, that's definitely news for me. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's a surprise when I first learned that as well. I was like, how can there be such a huge multi-billion dollar company on this island? But yeah. yeah, it's just you go there, everybody knows everybody in the travel space. It's a, it's a small world. Wow. And so then, so I'm actually going to Europe in October. So I'm going to be going to Germany and um, the Netherlands. And so I was actually thinking of using Snapchat. So if I, as a first time user, do I just download an app and I just start like messaging people? Is uh, that how you would guide me? No, there's no app to download. That's the benefit of it, right? So people these days, you know, they don't want to, uh, download an app. They don't want to browse it. They eight different sites. They don't want to, you know, walk to flight center. They don't want to call. They don't want to do anything. They just want to chat all day. So all you do is you open your message or uh, your messenger or, or WhatsApp or iMessage. 
you talk to the Snapchat bot, you say, hey, I'm going to, like you said, Netherlands or Germany on these dates. And the bot will give you a recommendation for those dates and the best deals. Wow. And so should I constantly message check every day to see if the deals change or will the bot take care of that for uh, me? Sort of both. So uh, we actually do follow up and give you recommendations like, hey, prices are changing. They're going up, they're going down. We do that for you. And you can also check. Some people love checking, some people don't. So it's up to you. Wow. And... So it seems it seems that travel has kind of been a part of your life earlier on. Like you lived in China, the UK, Japan, and then Canada. Um, I think like Toronto personally for me is is the sixth city that I've lived in as well. Like I lived in South Korea, Hong Kong, and all throughout Canada. And for you, then like what what was the reason for all that travel? <laughs> yeah. I, um, so growing up, um, I think my parents moved around a lot. So I was in UK because my dad was on doing his postdoc in Japan as well. And even within Canada, I was um, moving around, you know, as new immigrants, you sort of find your footing, and my parents were moving around a lot. Uh, but I grew up mostly in Mississauga, went to Waterloo for um, university. Uh, but even then, I think for me, I, I lived in New York for a co-op, I lived in SF, I lived in Hong Kong for an exchange. And I think just seeing the world and seeing how different people live and different cultures really opens your eyes in terms of what's out there. And I think that really helps you develop perspective. Was there like a particular moment where you felt like, hmm, I think my travels kind of opened my eyes to this particular thing? Um, I think for me, I really like traveling to places with really different and diverse cultures. Um, and so one of my favorite spots to travel is India uh, or Egypt, for example, because it's so different. Like, it, it, well, first of all, if you go to India, there's actually like no tourists. So it's when you walk around, you're like the only non-Indian person. And then you everything is so like different. With the culture, the food, the sights, and it's just absolutely beautiful. People are nice, but it's the thing, the way to do things is all different. And I think that really opened opens my eyes. You know, comparing that to say going to London, which is a great city, but you know, Canada, U.S. the culture comes from you know, British culture, so you expect a lot of the sim- very similar things, even though it's different, but it's still sort of European, uh, Western civilization. Whereas if you go to India, if you go to Egypt, you really see different types of you know, people's way, ways of lives and development and stuff. That's traveling. But I think for living, it's also kind of different for me. Um, I think living in, in Toronto and New York and San Francisco really helped, and Hong Kong, like really truly global cities, helped me develop perspective. You have so much like, innovation and things going on. Um, and that, like living there really helps me um, develop a global perspective. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely relate with that. Like, but yeah, going to places like Egypt and India and stuff. Like, did do you do you try to seek out places purposely that are difficult? Is that the mindset? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think um, maybe I was a bit swelled when I grew up. My parents took me a, on a lot of trips um, to like you know, Europe, Paris, Rome, like the classic spots, and and that's all great and whatnot. But at the end of the day, um, I think I learned that. It's still kind of similar, um, and it's fun. You know, the culture is great and, and very beautiful architecture and scenery and, and food and whatnot. But um, to really get a truly different experience, you really have to go out there. So India, I you know backpack my own. Um, I took the local train uh, with it's like only for locals. Technically, not, you're not as a foreigner. You're not even supposed to be on the train. But I ended up getting a ticket from my friend who's who is a local. So I you know backpacking in India or going to Egypt when right after they had a coup. So literally there were no tourists. It was like in 2013 when they just had a coup like um, two months ago. And, and it was great because you go to the pyramids, it's like four people. So I, I think for me, Adventures has always been super exciting and seeing the culture and the raw has been great. And you know one of the biggest, I, I still want to go to you know, many parts of South 
America because it's it's so different or parts of Africa and whatnot. So for me, I think traveling is about getting perspective and, and, and diverse ideas and experiences and seeking out new adventures for me has always been really rewarding. Is there like a particular kind of process? Like you have a hack for yourself where these are like the process that I follow to make sure that I have this kind of more authentic experience? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, uh, I mean, I'm kind of, I call myself a checklist guy. So I, every time I go to a city, I actually spend no more than two days there because the third day is um, diminishing returns. I mean, that's why they have deals, right? Like if, you look at, if you look at the typical hotel deal, it's like stay two nights, get the third night, third night free because they know that the third night, your marginal utility is so low that you rather just have it for free. So for me, I spend roughly almost two days in the city and I just make sure I hit up all the highlights, you know, like what's the biggest thing, what's the most important thing. I mean, you still want to spend time like wandering around talking to locals and whatnot, but for me, um, uh, for me, I think about it from a marginal, like marginal game, marginal, I guess, impact perspective. And the most popular biggest things are, are some of the biggest um, things. Um, so for example, I was in, I just did a trip in Central Europe after my work in Palma. I went to Vienna for like a day, actually no, like 20, 26 hours, right? So I went to the old town, did a tour, spent like two, two hours there, saw everything. And then I caught up with a friend uh, who lived there, who showed me around, had some good local food. Next morning, I went to the palace and came back and that's it. You hit all the highlights, you talk to local people, you see the life and you're done. What, like 24 hours? I mean, of course, you should spend more time if you have the time. But for me, I think uh, being able to do that in many, 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 many different countries is, I think, gives me... Uh, it is the first sort of step towards getting insight. And then once you've seen everything, then you deep dive into, you know, a place or a city um, that you really want to explore. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I can definitely relate with that because when I when I first traveled, I was very much similar. Like it was very focused on, okay, let's go to X many cities and try to really be super hyper efficient about everything. Like I'd color code everything, try to plan all the most optimal routes so that we don't waste any time. And nowadays so but you bring up a good point where the first time it's just to kind of test it out to see like, hmm, is it good? And then deciding I'm going to go back. Um, like I've been to Vienna twice and I think I've probably spent a total of close to like 10 days worth in Vienna like um, over the two trips. But I think um, that's also been an evolution where nowadays I try to just take longer in, in cities and I just try to emulate my life in Toronto there. Like I'll stay in coffee shops for eight hours just staring at people, drinking coffee, reading. But yeah, I think it's funny like you see here like your your travel style because I can definitely under I can definitely empathize with <laughs> the decrease in yeah. marginal. Well, well there's a lot there. more to do, right? Like if you're trying to see, you know, a hundred different cities or yeah, hundred yeah, yeah. countries, if you do the math, it's gonna take you like two hundred days. Yeah. Right. Two hundred days is a long time. Um, so I think for me, uh, I, I, that's why I'm a I say I'm a checklist guy because I want to check more checklists. So until <laughs> I do that, you know, there's a, <laughs> it's going to be tough spending more than three days in a city. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely agree. And so then this kind of this checklist guy mindset, I'm I'm wondering like did it did it kind of stem from like an early childhood? Like were you always kind of a checklist guy? Like I know your parents are both very like I would say in the technical fields. Like your mother was in is in computer science. Your father is an aerospace engineer. So he even have a postdoc as well. So it seems like a hyper-intellectual technical family. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, to be honest, probably it came from my... Um, so I actually did a joint major in economics, and I think a lot of the economic thinking, thinking about utility, maximization, thinking about marginal, I think that was the biggest um, lesson. Plus, you take that with startups. 
So when you're running a startup, a lean startup, you're thinking about how do I build MVPs? How do I iterate? How do I test the hypothesis really quickly, right? So I think you combine the two together, you end up becoming like a checklist guy because you're saying, okay, how do I get the most you know, uh, marginal utility with the least risk in the most fast iterative, iterative way possible, right? And how do you do that when you travel? Well, it's you go to the city for two days and you hit all the hot highlights and you you know spend time with a friend locally, right? You, you crash with a friend, you save money, you spend time with a local friend, and then you hit all the highlights in the day, and then you, you know, you... you yeah, so, so I think it's a combination of that, but I'd say my education in economics, I think helped shape a lot of that learning. And I find it to be still helpful even today because you're... I think... A, a lot of times people don't think about the margin. You know, it's like, oh, this is, um, you know, $2 off, but $2 off of $2 is like, uh, $4 is, you know, 50%, right? You think about things on the margin, it really changes uh, the way you think about things. And I, and I think that's, you know, mostly for good, sometimes not good, but mostly I think it's taught me to think about things on, on a more marginal perspective. Mm-hmm. And so you you did economics in Waterloo, but you also did computer science there as well. Yeah. And did you want to always be, like go down the computer science path as like a child. Like, I'm, I'm just guessing that you know with parents with such such like technical backgrounds that you know, you, you would have been just heavily exposed to that at such an early age. So that might have been tough to kind of think about anything else. But I'm just wondering what what did you want to be when you were young? Yeah, I, I think actually it's funny because um, when I was going to undergrad, I actually wanted to do some sort of business thing or accounting. So I, I think it's because um, back then. You know, back like I guess back then this was like 2010. Um, you know, finance was all the cool stuff, right? All the coolest kids, smartest kids going to finance because make a bunch of money. But now it's computer science, so it's kind of different. But uh, before then, you know, computer science was, was not cool. It was not what the cool kids did. Um, but for me, so I, I actually wanted to go. I applied for mostly business programs, and I wanted to do accounting at Waterloo. But for some reason. I think um, I ended up applying for computer science maybe because my mom, you know, she's a computer scientist, so she kind of said, hey, you know, Waterloo's really known for that, so you should at least apply for the program they're well known for. So I was like, okay, okay, fine, so I apply, and then what happened was I ended up getting a scholarship, um, That, but that requirement was that you had to study something in STEM, um, and, you know, I, I must say that probably saved my life, uh, well, changed my life, that's a better word, uh, because what ended up happening was that, you know, little did I know that the world would change so much between, like, 2008 and like 2014 uh, because you know we didn't have iPhone just launched you know Facebook was just becoming a thing uh, Google was still building the brand and, and I think just the world enti- changed entirely and um, all of a sudden you know people are getting paid a lot and you can build startups and startups are going IPO becoming unicorns the world changed so fast in the last 10 years and I think I was super lucky to be caught on the, the, the um, forefront of that um, all because of I guess my parents' inclination plus some uh, scholarship that ended up having a requirement. So I got really fortunate. I think um, that's kind of how it happening. I, I, I actually didn't, well, I wasn't one of those kids where I was programming when I was six. I think I only started programming maybe in like grade 11 or 12. And um, I think I only built my first like actual program or website or something usable like in like second year. So it's not like I was one of those whiz kids building programs for like 20 years. Um, it's not like that. I, I think I just ended up learning a lot, building things, and getting really into the um, sort of builder, uh, startup, um, iterative mentality. It's, that's so fascinating that you say that because, so, you know, I went, I went to accounting in Waterloo, and so it's like, it's really possible that we could have actually been classmates. But I think the even funnier part is, my situation was exactly like yours, but the opposite. So I spent all of my high school um, preparing to be an engineer, 
like I did all the physics, I did all the calculus, like all the uh, competitions, and I had um, I applied to accounting as like just a backup, like on a whim, and just like I was like, oh, they have accounting. This business sounds cool. I'll, I'll apply to that, but I had only focused on engineering. And then when all the offers came, engineering gave me more money for scholarships than accounting did, but just, I just made a decision just last minute. Because, you know, I think I'm going to go to business instead. And then I just switched in and, oh man, a friend, I'd still talk with my engineering friends, but and I wonder how, how different my life might have, might have turned out if I had taken engineering. Then. But because you're right, like when we're in school, I think, I remember when my friends started first getting like co-op jobs at Facebook, it wasn't even that cool then. It was, you know, they were at Facebook and you said, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a startup company. And then over time, as like 2014, 2015 hit, like it started becoming like that big thing where everyone's like, oh yeah, you, you want to be in this field. You want to go into software. And it's it's funny, like, now that you put it in perspective with that pivotal moment from 08 to like 2014, like, yeah, I think people, you know, people were kind of licking their wounds on the financial meltdown after 08, but business was still like that prominent memory then. And, but it seems like for you, like you still had that kind of inkling or some kind of interest in business because you, your co-op terms were at Bloomberg and I think it was like LendUp, like they both seem to be like very finance oriented. So I'm wondering, did you have this kind of pull to, to that kind of business kind of finance world? Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, you know, when I when I, I was still studying economics, so I, I right. was going to get a minor, but then I looked at it, I was like, well, it's only like four more courses to get a major, so I might as well just get a major. Um, <laughs> and that was sort of, uh, I guess, more checklist kind of mentality. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I ended up doing that. And, and so for me, business has been interesting. And I think um, technology is great, and I, I like technology, but ultimately it has to create value and, you know, be used by people and, and create value. And ultimately, a lot of business about how do you actually take something cool and new and innovative innovative and create value out of it so that's kind of what um what um i wanted to do and in terms of the co-op stuff yeah i think initially i still want to do some um more finance related stuff so actually i was going to be in the cfm program actually which is like a computational oh. financial management program that's why i did a term in school shit uh bank uh on some back office stuff for trading and then I did a term in Bloomberg but the thing about Bloomberg is and this is I think something that's maybe changed my perspective is when I was going for Bloomberg I one of the recruiters was a Waterloo alum and he uh, was sort of a, a team lead of Bloomberg Sports which is a um, startup within Bloomberg so he convinced me to join the startup team because you know if you move faster get more things done so I thought okay uh, this is really cool um, I'll give it a shot. So I ended up doing Bloomberg Sports, uh, and that's when I kind of first worked at a startup. So even though it was a big company, Bloomberg's big company, it was a startup team within Bloomberg. And that was really cool because I got to see them build a product, you know, scratch. Well, not from scratch, but build a product and really work on something cool, innovative, and have a, you know, make an impact instead of just being one of the 10,000 employees. That was kind of really cool. So even though it was Bloomberg, it was within a startup. And Lendup as well. Lendup is a startup that I joined when there were just like 10 people just came in NYC. And again, same thing, you know, it's a startup, had great founders, and I thought I could learn a lot. And seeing that growth from you know, 10 people to raising their Series A, and I think now they're probably raised like 200 plus million, I mean, hundreds of employees. It's just such an incredible journey. And I think that's where um, the startup factor played more in effect or influenced me more than, say, the, the financial aspect. Mm-hmm. And so then was it after that period where you decided, okay, I'm going to apply to Next36 to try to create my own startup? And it, did you mention your first company um, come out of that? Um, sort of, yes and no. So I've always been doing startups um, in sort of through junior achievement. 
uh, which is the high school program where you build a company. Um, and that's sort of a, you know more of a traditional business, right? Where you come with an idea, you have a VP finance, VP marketing, VP sales, VP, uh, I think they call it VP of IT back then, and then a you know, CEO, whatever. So it's a very traditional business where you go and you sell, you make a product, you, you build it and you sell it. And I think that's something that, but it's it's the it's the it's a process that matters. Right? It's a process of coming an idea, doing the sales, building the product, and then ultimately you know issuing the shareholder, um, paying them back and stuff. So that's really cool. Um, but I'd say that um, that was my first sort of entry into startups. But the first real sort of you know foreign to actually building a company or a tech company was through the X fifty six. So uh, I think I was applying for it in my second year. Because uh, my one of my friends was heard about it, had it applied, so I thought it was pretty cool. Let me give it a try. So I ended up um, doing the program, and that's when I first actually had a team, built the tech product, and had some capital to build it. But looking back, and um, that I was like, I don't even know what I was building. It was just so, I was so naive. I guess it was just you know we're trying to build some SaaS tool for enterprise HR learning development. But looking back, I was like, I don't even know what I was building. And you know, I didn't solve a problem. I didn't understand the problem. And I didn't know what we were building. So it was a really good learning experience, but I would say it was probably a terrible company. Um, so taking that lesson, I finished the program in 20, I think, 2012, and then I met my co-founder friend you mentioned through a mutual friend. And you mentioned was more of my, um, I guess, my earlier, relative, somewhat early success. Uh, so you mentioned is a social mobile network that helps people helps people meet friends. That was your initial original vision and goal is to help people meet friends in a semi-anonymous manner. So you could be anonymous but you had to be verified that you are part of the network, so part of the school, whatever it is. So uh, it's kind of to create a safe space, and that's what we started with. We launched, you know, people liked it, but ultimately we found that most people didn't actually need friends, or they got their friends and they left the platform because people you know, just need a group. They don't need to continue to make new friends. So we thought, okay, well, if people didn't want friends, um, you know, why would they stay? And the people who did, who did stay, well, they stayed because of the, the memes, uh, the, the funny pictures, the, and the gossip, and the juicy content, well, we're like, well, if that's what they want, they don't want the friendship, let's just, you know, pivot. So we made a mobile app. It's kind of like Tinder meets Yikyak. Um, and so you basically the same thing, location-based, but you could share posts anonymously. And then that really took off. It took it was really big in the South, like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. And you, you built it here, but yeah. then it took off in the South? Yeah, yeah, because it has a really big, um, like, party culture, you know, a sports culture, frat culture. And we had a, had a, had a, had a um, like sort of campus growth guy who was based in Atlanta. He's from Atlanta, and he helped grow the, grow in a lot of schools there. But essentially what it, what, it, what it became was a way for people to share news and hook up and gossip. And, you know, I was like, there's nothing wrong with that, but I really wasn't sure if I wanted to spend the next five years of my life helping people share news, hook up, and gossip. So... I decided to take a step back, figure out what I want to do, and that's when I decided to join Google. Wow. And so you mentioned, is, is that, um, was it part of the Velocity program? Yeah, it was. So that was part of Velocity, which is an awesome, awesome experience. Um, I think I met a lot of great people, great friends from Velocity. Velocity is an incubator residence and workspace out of uh, Waterloo, uh, or University of Waterloo. So they have, they have a residence where you can live in and just like a hacker community where you live in and you can work on stuff. And they have a garage space where you can actually work there as a, as a sort of a, a company. Yeah, look, I, it's funny. I, I had a call with, um, with like a student in Waterloo and she, she's like just about to go into second year and I was telling her, I, I really wish I took better, more advantage of the Waterloo like school entrepreneurship program, like philosophy, for example. I told her like, try to look into that because my experience with philosophy was very brief. Like, I think 
our startup, we can't even call it a startup. Like we had a site, we had everything. It was textbook, right. textbook selling. Like that thing was like the rage back then. So I was like the head of marketing. And I think that company maybe lasted like three months, <laughs> four months. And then the tech guy said, screw it, we're not going to build this out. But for you, like, I, you, know, you mentioned actually was being used by people. Like you had traction. And so then did you just decide to just shut it all down and well, just move away from it? Yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of big, you know, it was pretty big in the South. I think it was doing like a couple of million pages a day. Um, but what happened was, you know, when you look at it, you like, you project it out. Well, it's like, well, we're here today. We're still very early. We got to get to, you know, 50, 100 million pages a day. And then even on top of that, uh, we're going to keep growing and um, we're far, you know, we're burning money when nobody's making money. How do we sustain that? Right. So it's really hard and it's really tricky. And um, you know, if you look at Yikak now, they raised like 60 million from Sequoia and then they died, uh, went like nothing. So it, it's really hard, it's a really hard space. And the combination of the change in the mission from helping people meet and make friends into help people gossip and, you know, hook up, it, it's quite a different mission. So I thought maybe I want to take a step back and figure out what I want to do. So I decided to uh, take a sabbatical, if you will, um, go, to the go to the Valley, be around smart people, figure out what I want to do. And then my co-founders continued with the, um, with the uh, startup. So they continued running it and then pivoted to like messaging and then they eventually sort of, I think, winded it down like two years later. Mm. And I love that you called going to Google a sabbatical. And this, I actually am fully in agreement with that, um, I think, labeling because I, I have friends in Silicon Valley and they, they describe it in a very similar way. <laughs> and that's that's how I, that's what I also like tell like, younger folks as well, like when they do like big companies because I think there are ways to you know be entrepreneurial and make things happen, but at the same time, when you join such like big behemoths, it's you know you can just kind of go under the radar. And there are a lot of times when it takes a really really long time to really get anything done. I think when we first chatted, you told me about how like it could take as long as like eight months for you to like even build a product or like get something rolled out. Yeah, yeah I mean I, I think you know Google's a great company, a lot of smart people, but ultimately it's a it's a big company. And it's just hard to get things done. There's you know more things, more legacy systems, more stakeholders, a lot of process, bureaucracy, and ultimately, yeah, it's like, you know, it's pretty chill. There's no stress, and you could work um, as hard as you want or not very hard, depending on you, what you want to do. And there's free food, so it's kind of like yeah, it's like a sabbatical. You, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a great sabbatical. You get great pay, great perks, like. When I took my sabbatical, I had no pay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but also you have, you know, it, it's hard because um, it's, it's tough because I, I think as a young person who is motivated to get things done, it can also be very frustrating right? yeah. because you're trying to push things through, uh, but you can't or it's hard and it just, it's, it's, it can be frustrating. I'm, I'm imagining though, like you, you must have known that, you know, it, it would be like that or was it a big shocker? Mm, I, I think it's still pretty surprising because when you hear about it, you're like, wow, you know, it's the Google Plex and it's, you know, everybody's supposed to be happy and you're sort of really smart, uh, you know, some of the smartest people in the world, which is not untrue. But ultimately, if you think about it now, you know, like uh, I, I like to joke that, you know, Google's the new Microsoft, Microsoft's the new IBM. Um, so as companies get to a certain scale, you have to you know, deliver on certain types of results or financial impact. And you have to work on features that ultimately aren't so you know, life-changing, uh, which is not saying they're not important, but it's just not the original sort of, uh, I guess, vibe or culture. Uh, and yeah, and also I was surprised because it's there's a it's, it's super flexible and super chill. So you could literally, you know, work really, really hard or not at all. Hmm. And, and so for you, like after, after you finished your startup, like 
did you not want to join another fast-growing startup? Yeah, that's a good question. So the reason why I didn't want to join a fast-growing startup is because um, I knew I wanted to do my own startup at some point, mm-hmm. and I fear that if I joined, say, Airbnb or, or Uber or whatever, you know, I'm gonna be sort of golden handcuffed, right? Because it's every year is like next year's IPO, next year's IPO. So you're there, and you know, shortly do you know it, you've been there for like five years, and you're like thirty. You're like, wow, what am I? I mean, you probably still get a good payout and whatnot, but ultimately, it's like I knew that it's something I want to do for a short time, like a year. I didn't want to have the pressure or the um, uh, sort of psychology of being locked in because of some future payout. And how, how, I'm wondering, like, did you see this kind of stuff happen? Is that why you were able to see it ahead of time? Because I, I asked because, you know, I think maybe, maybe it's the benefit of co-op, but I still think it's a very tough thing for most people to grasp when they're going into their kind of first full-time role um, out of school. Like they're, I think, predominantly, they believe that you know, brand first, is going to come um, but you were able to kind of think through all this stuff ahead of time logically well I, I think um, you know the brand definitely is still there right so joining Google was a big part with Spark but also the branding which I have to admit does, does help um, right and in terms of the investing I guess being locked in I, I think that was for me just seeing some of my older peers who you know like hey like after like three years why are you still there like you're not very happy and you tell me you want to quit but why haven't you quit it right mm-hmm. and i think i think a lot of it's just like at the end of the day you know people are sort of creatures of habit and they're motivated by the reward system that's designed to motivate them right and then the, these companies know you know like google knows exactly how much to pay you so that way you're you're happy but you're not like you know you're not like a few money and they know just when you're going to quit they give you more right? like for example when i was there and they're uh you know i was like well i was thinking about when to quit but then there's like never a good time to quit because you know there's christmas bonus and then there's vacation and then there's like a refresh in march and there's a promo in like june and like you're always like just when you're about to quit like oh no i got something else for you so i think it's it's really hard and, and it's but it's designed that way right it's designed that way to keep people motivated which uh you know it's just that's how we people are people are uh ultimately behave in ways that the reward systems are designed yeah, I totally agree with that. And if I were to quote Charlie Munger, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, he says, if you have to work on one thing in your entire life, just work on incentives because that's going to drive everything. And humans are predictably irrational. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but for you, like, what, what, did it, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur, to create your own startup? Like, why was it such an important thing? Um, yeah, that's a question. I think it's, and it's, a, it's a really important question too because... You know, as as Mark Zuckerberg says, you know, don't start a startup for the sake of starting a startup. And I think sometimes we're caught up in the fantasy of doing a startup, you know, being your own boss. But uh, I, I think for me, uh, it's it's sort of like just the entrepreneurial bug. Like once you get bit once, you can't ever let go. I think a lot of it comes down with the just the creative process of building something from nothing and seeing the fact that you know this thing never would have existed without you and the team and putting together the great people behind it and. You created something that people like and value, and you know, as you mentioned, we help people make lifelong friends. People actually got married because they met on you mentioned, right? And that's a lifelong, that's a lasting impact. So I think that's really cool, and that's something that it's hard to achieve elsewhere. However, I would say that if your goal is to say, you know, make a scientific breakthrough or um, make a huge impact on mil- hundreds of millions of people, yeah, maybe it is. There are better places for that, like a research lab or like you know, a big company. Like if you're the person in charge of, I don't know just say you know, newsfeed ranking on Facebook, that's a huge impact, right? Probably much bigger than I could ever get, as you mentioned. So I think it depends on how, what you want to do and how you want to achieve that. But for me, it's the uh, sort of creating nothing, something from nothing that's super exciting and compelling. 
And so you left Google after about 15 months. You left in 2015. I think it was like October. And right. I think Snap Travel kind of came into official being sometime like April of 2016. Right. So then for that seven months, what, what was happening? Sure. Um, so uh, while at Google, I actually spent a lot of time trying to find my next you know, co-founder or early startup. So I had a, I would, I had a sort of a, a spectrum of, you know, next steps from co-founding company to join a company as a first employee or whatnot. Um, so throughout the six months, I probably talked to like 100 people with, you know, notebook like this thick about ideas, people process and uh, really detailed notes on that. And I think I ended up meeting my current co-founder about half a year in. And we just really got along in terms of common values, ideas, goals, beliefs, whatever. And we decided that we knew that we wanted to work together. So we came together, and even then we were working like part time after work, whatever, for about half a year before we said, okay, yeah, we let's, we are sure about this. So I quit my job. He joined me in SF, and we hit the ground running. So when we quit, when I quit, we had no idea and no industry. Just like we'll figure some shit out. So then, sorry, if, sorry to um, interrupt, but so then you and Hussein, like you guys just said, all right, we like each other. We yeah. share the similar views, values. Right. Let's just work together. No well, idea. So we were testing a bunch of things in the background. And there was some like random like food delivery stuff and whatever. But we're like, yeah, we're not really getting anywhere unless we do it full time. So like, okay, fuck it, let's just do it full time. So we, we quit. Uh, I quit my job on Friday. He flew here on Sunday and we hit the ground running on Monday. So we're like talking to customers, ideating, starting from nothing, right? Just like lean startup. You know, what's, what's your problem? What's your hypothesis? How do we build it? How do we validate? Talk to customers, talk to users and just iterate on that process. And yeah, it, it's it's a process, but um, it, that took six months uh, to get here. So the first three months, we did a SaaS tool. Um, it's like, a, I guess, a better version of Mechanical Turk for uh, task labeling and automation. That's something we did for the first six months. It's okay, I got some revenue, but I realized it wasn't really scalable, so we decided to kill it, restart. Uh, and in January 2016, we met the xcohotels.com. So with them, we were brainstorming some hotel ideas, and that's how we got into the hotel space. And then Facebook just launched the Messenger SDK where you can build bots on Facebook. And that's kind of how we put everything together, uh, sort of in the hotel space with the automation of the uh, of the chatbot stuff. And then that's how it came together. It's it's almost kind of like a fairy tale. Like you needed that stuff to kind of all work out. But if we even take it back to then the actually no, I'm gonna take it a little further back. You said you had a notebook of hundreds of people that you wanted to talk to. Yeah. Well, maybe not hundreds. Maybe like you know, a couple dozen. But yeah. <laughs> Was it the whole? Was the whole purpose to just find a co-founder? Was that it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's kind of like dating. You know, it's like you have to talk to a lot of people to know yourself, what you value, and make sure it's a good fit. Did you, why did you want a co-founder? Um, I, I think for me, um, you know, solo founders are hard in general. It's um, well known that it's it's quite hard to be a solo founder. And for me, I was pretty young. Um, I think like 22, 23 back then. So having somebody to bounce ideas off with, you know, to work with, learn from is, is I think, an invaluable experience. So, yeah. So how, what, what are these conversations like when you meet people that could be, you know, like kind of like marriage? Do you want to start a company with me? Yeah, I think it's actually better than dating because you can be very upfront about it, right? Because in dating, you can't be like, hey, do you want to get married? Like, what are your thoughts on this? Is this? But for a company, you, you can, right? Because you both know you have some sort of intent to build something great together. So you just, you know, talk about like yourself, your background, kind of like this interview, right? Like your story, my story, how do we work well together? What are your thoughts? And you know, some people have ideas, right? So you talk about, they pitch their idea to you, you, you know, poke holes in it, you discuss it, you, you iterate, you uh, brainstorm. So it, it really depends on the process. But yeah, generally it is about learning 
process of learning about each other, learning about your ideas and your values and what kind of business you want to build. Hmm. And w- what about Hussein like really ignited uh, some like some kind of feeling in it? Um, yeah, I, I think part of it was too just that. I mean, he had a lot of Hussein, my co-founder, had a lot of experience built the company before, so that but he was still super down to earth and super sort of you know, um, super down to earth, super hardworking, and sort of ready to grind. And I think that combination of experience plus the humility and plus the drive, I think, is really rare. And we just got along in terms of wanting to build a you know a big company, a fast growing company. Hmm. So I'm guessing you you're probably talking to multiple people, and then. You, over time, was it like a process of, all right, people are kind of falling off and you're realizing more about how people really work and then Hussein was kind of the last one remaining where you're like, I have a gut feeling about Hussein, this is it. Yeah. Or was it another checklist? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know about the last one per se, but it's actually really rare. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of like dating, right? Like, you have a lot of first dates, but very few second dates and very few third dates mm-hmm. and then, you know, people you see for a month and, and whatnot. So, similarly, you, have, you meet a lot of people for the first time, right? And, you know, more than half of them you probably never talk to again. And then other people who are somewhat interested, you have a follow-up call, maybe you do a working session together, uh, right? You meet in person, whatever it is. But it, it's a process and, and, and you work through it. But I'd say, like, um, it's, I probably had, like, three or four other teams or co-founders that I got pretty deep with in terms of, like, ideation, working on things, hacking on things together. But it's, yeah, it's really rare. And so then after, you know, you, you guys, you know, thing comes down to SF, you guys are working on, you guys, you know, you quit Google. You have the first company. It's generating revenue. Right. I, I can only I can't imagine it being an easy thing to kill when it seems to be somewhat working. Well, what's the decision criteria there yeah. to kill something that you've worked so hard on and it's actually working some some degree? Yeah, I, I think that's where perspective comes in, right? Like I think for me, you know, um, because all my startups have been like sort of social and non non monetization startups. So for me, like any revenue is great, but. I think my co-founder, that's where perspective really helps is, you know, he's built a company that's done, you know, hundreds of millions of sales. So for him, it's like, you know, getting, if it's this hard to get, you know, like, I think it was like $500 a month, whatever, then it's probably not very scalable, right? Because we had to do a lot of custom work, we had to do a long sales cycle, and ultimately it was a service that nobody cared about. We were like, I think we were helping them classify and filter out like images for like certain dating app. And just like they have all these users and they spend all this money on marketing, but they didn't want to spend, you know, a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars on this, you know, stuff, right? So we thought, well, ultimately we're tackling a cost center and this is something that people don't care that much about. And we had to do so so much custom work um, that it wasn't scalable or we couldn't see a path to like, you know, uh, a fast scaling company. Hmm. And when I look at a lot of other founders, I think it's a common theme where founders tend to try to scratch their own itch, find problems that irk them. And I'm wondering, was that the same process for you? Like you, you kind of said that, you know, you didn't really have a particular industry that you're focusing on, but do you find that, did you find that you guys were kind of levitating around problems that really impact them? Is that how the travel space came about? Like meeting the ex-CEO of Hotels.com? Yeah, I, I think that the first company, the SaaS tool, that was actually came from my experience at YouTube, where I was doing something similar for like music annotations. And you know the system that we had was custom built uh, in house. It was kind of janky and ultimately uh, wasn't great. And it's like okay, well, a lot of people need annotations. Um, how do you uh, make it better, right? And actually, fun fact: there's a company, Scale AI, that just you know raised like 100 million on this thing like two weeks ago. So it's funny how everything comes full circle. But um, yeah, so so 
I mean, that also tells you it's all about execution, right? Like ideas change, you pivot and you iterate, but execution matters a lot. So that's kind of how uh, that one got started. For the hotel stuff, that was actually quite different. That was much more based on customer behavior. So we had, uh, you know, we were brainstorming with um, uh, Scott Brooker, the exeohotels.com on some last minute reverse bidding ideas. But then we, what we did was we built the landing page and got people to come to it and try to, you know, get them to use our site. But people, instead of using our website, they just emailed us to travel, their travel plans. They're like, hey, I'm going to you know, New York. What do you have for me? And we thought, well, if people still wanted to email instead of using the website, how do we make it better, right? How do we bring back the travel agent experience but have the scalability of an OTA like Expedia um, all through this sort of chat platform? So that's kind of how we got to that idea. It was less of a maybe scratch my own itch but more about observing the um, you know, user behavior and then going from there. So then the, the XEO of Hotels.com, like, did you just coincidentally come upon him and he kind of told you about a problem in the area? Is that how it happened? Uh, not quite. We actually reached out to him on LinkedIn, um, just kind of cold, and um, um, he was kind of doing, a, I think, an EIR at some firm as well. So you know, he was super nice. And I think what one thing we learned EIR is that... EIR as in entrepreneur in residence? Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the things you learn is that people are actually friendlier than their titles appear like there's people who are very approachable even though they were a senior and i think generally people just want to help so we got in touch with him you know we're brainstorming some ideas and that's how kind of how we got into the first reverse bidding idea but that wasn't what eventually emerged wow so then i'm guessing when you first reached out to him it was just was it just that he's an interesting person and you could learn something from it. It was because hotel companies were potential clients of our uh, old SaaS company because you know, hotel companies had a lot of humans who you know, needed to label the um, catalog. Right? That's kind of how like, it came together. Oh, wow. Talk about weird serendipity. Yeah. And so then after, you know, after you've decided, okay, you guys are going to do Snap Travel and then you end up raising some seed money and is that when you decide to move back to Toronto? Yeah, it's a combination. So I think... Um, you know, I quit my job and I had to switch my visa to, and then we were there for six months. And then uh, after we built the prototype, um, you know, in the early days, it was me on iMessage where people could message me and I would manually look up hotel deals for them and send it over iMessage. But the crazy part was that people actually gave us their credit cards like over iMessage and we could book things. So like, okay. They just trusted you. Yeah, I guess so. So they were like, hey, there's something here, right? So we built some automation. Um, and then we started to build some prototypes. We got, you know, I think very, very early, like $10,000 in sales. And we, and we said, okay, wow, there's something here. So we raised a seed round. I mean, it wasn't easy. I think we talked to like probably nine, close to like 100 investors. I think 98 said no. One said maybe, one said yes. So we took the money and ran. We're like, okay, all right, we, we that's, all, that's all we need. Took it and ran. And then at that time, I also got a letter in the mail. It's like, hey, you got two weeks to leave the country. We're like, okay. So I, yeah, we basically raised around, moved back to Canada. Still two of us moved to DMZ. Um, that's where we started. And then they've been super helpful giving us space early on. And then grew a team from two to like six or seven. Launched in July and then the rest is history. And I, I can I can only imagine how like difficult it would have been to just go through hundred like a hundred investors. Like yeah. what, what, did you just have another notebook of just basically, all the investors in Silicon Valley just basically, send all your pictures? Yeah, basically you go through them all, right? Because it's, it's one of those things which is like you just run, literally run up Sandhill Road up and down. I think there'll be days where we had, you know, six meetings back to back. But it's it's most of my co-founder, like he's the one who did most of the work there. But yeah, it's it's tough. It's a, it's a process. Wow. And so, you know, you said the rest is history. And so, you know, after that, you, you found product market fit in 2017. Like, was that, was that a challenging 
um, process though, or was did it happen relatively smoothly? Just because like, you kind of figured out an algorithm yeah, after that ten thousand dollars. Yeah, it was definitely still still a <laughs> definitely still a process, because you know I think our 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 first hypothesis is um, can we build uh, um, like people want a really white glove concierge experience. So for example, we would have actual human agents do everything at San for you, like a travel agent concierge. But we kind of learned that what happened was, you know, people actually, two things. One is people didn't really know what they wanted. So they would say, oh, you know, I want to be near the beach, four stars, free breakfast, uh, whatever. So we would actually literally handpick the best option for that criteria for you. Right. But then they're like, actually, why don't you tell me this other hotel? We're like, wait, but that hotel is like downtown, two stars and like whatever. Like, yeah, but it's like 100 bucks cheaper. Well, like, oh, well, I mean, you, you, I can't give you what you don't know, right? And similarly, we got other experiences experiences where people say, oh, you know, can you give me this recommendation? We do, and they're like, okay, thanks, it's a great recommendation, but I found a cheaper price elsewhere. So we kind of saw that this concierge service was a nice-to-have, but not a must-have. Like, people weren't dying for it, so we thought, okay, is there a way to build something that they were dying for? And people did, but sometimes when we got them a really good deal, they were dying for that. So we thought, okay, how do we make it really easy and a good experience, but focus on getting you a really good recommendation, a good deal as fast as possible. So we automated a lot of the things uh, and you can still talk to your agent. You can still get a white glove experience if you want, but otherwise you don't have to. You can you know talk to a bot and you can use our web elements. You can do whatever, but our goal now is to get you the best deal in the fastest, easiest way possible. And that over time proved that, like what was, the, what right. was that um, process like? Yeah, I mean, I think, that we started to work, you know, we saw people, the conversion were better and the, the, we require way less humans. I think we started with everything 100% human and now I think over like 94% is uh, automated. Hmm. Well, what was the kind of tip off point for you guys where you then conclude that we have product market fit? I think it's when we really started to scale. I think when we hit like first million dollars in sales, that was really exciting. That was um, sort of a pivotal moment for our Series A, Razor Series A in 20, 2017. And then continue to grow. So yeah, I think that was kind of a really uh, interesting and pivotal moment for that. Yeah, and you know, like you, you guys made a splash by getting Steph Curry on as yeah. as an investor. But how? What was the? Was there kind of a motive to get Steph Curry on, or was it more like it kind of mutually happened? Yeah, it kind of kind of happened. It was great. It's always good to have a, you know celebrity uh, as an investor on your team. But I think it happened kind of you know sort of. Spontaneous uh, as well. So, for example, we um, we were raising around, uh, and our lead investor, Telstra Ventures, they did a deal with Steph Curry before and uh, Teams Woman, the esports game uh, company. So we're like, okay, well, um, what other value add can you guys bring? And they're like, okay, well, we might be able to get Steph Curry involved. We're like, okay, sure, let's make it happen. So they put us in touch with his manager, pitches manager. He, his manager like hey, he showed us stuff Steph's like yeah I'm down let's make it happen we're like okay great uh, and that was it yeah it's just him and his manager and they make pretty fast decisions and, and you know we're happy, lucky and happy to have him on board well what was the what were you more like, most like excited about with the financing was it just the ability to get the funding to grow the company or was it you know like the next stage like what was it about the Series A financing that really got you excited. Yeah, I, I think you know it's definitely an exciting moment for everybody. It's kind of a milestone, even though you know it's not really, but it still is because it's very tangible. Um, and for our employees, for our users, and for people who want to work with us, it really helps with legitimacy, and helps with branding, helps with you know um, um, scaling the company, and it also means that we can bring on good people and continue to grow and scale and build build great products. And 
while you're doing all this, you also got a master's. Oh yeah. Can't, can't forget about that. You got, <laughs> you got a master's degree from Georgia Tech, um, doing master's in computer science and machine learning. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine is actually doing that master's right now. Oh, that's great. And, but you were doing this master's while you were running the company. Like you, you I think I, I read like you, you know, you, you're here at 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. and then you're finding time after that to do your coursework to do a <laughs> master's degree yeah i mean that's kind of interesting so i actually started that program when i was at google when i was really bored and that was kind of a way to keep my mind fresh that's how i started the program it was one of my colleagues there he was doing it one of the first cohorts and he's like yeah i got this great program it's a top 10 school it's a full degree so it's not a, a modern degree at all it's a full degree and he's like it's like eight thousand dollars i'm like wow what a good deal Right? I'm like, okay, well, I'll start, might as well. And then I started it, and it was great. And then even after I quit, when we were first starting our startup, it was still a really good experience because the school is one of those things where it's like, you know that if you put X amount of effort in, you're going to get Y back. But in life and startups, you can put X in, you can get negative Y back, right? So for that, for me, it was like a very much a motivational factor where I knew that the world was chaotic and I don't know what I was doing in my startup life. But in school, I knew that if I worked hard, put an X amount of effort, I'm not just going to get Y back. So that's kind of how it started. And then I started building my company and it was great. But then it got to a point where I got really busy. But then I was like, I'm almost done. I'm like 80% done. Might as well just finish the program. Um, so yeah, I kind of just ended up taking the minimum requirements required for the specialization in machine learning. I still learn a lot. It's a great program, by the way. Great great faculty, great teachers. At and, and I ended up finishing the program, I think, three years later. It's really cool. Um, I like it. I, I, the faculty is great. Um, you know, met with them in uh, Atlanta last year. And just a fantastic program. And they're really inspired. Uh, I was really inspired by the fact that they're doing this to help make public education more affordable. So I think about traditionally a master's would cost anywhere between, you know, 30 to 100K. They're making it for 8K, right? And it's a top 10 school. So they're taking a big reputational hit. Uh, well, um, potentially, and they're willing to do this because it's the kind of the right thing to do and to help, you know, anybody who has internet, can speak English, can get a great education. And I think that's something that's really, um, you know, worthy of respect and admiration. And you, you said when you actually chose to do the program, there was, there was a way to kind of combat the chaos in your life. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about that, that feeling of chaos? Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, um, there's two things. One is like, at uh, the surface level, when I first quit Google, I was super relieved because there's no stress, no frustration, no politics, bureaucracy. But I think internally, and I didn't realize this, I was still very sort of scared in a way. I remember the first couple of weeks, I was getting nightmares at night for some reason, and I usually don't. And I think it's just a sub, it's a subconscious like lack of structure, maybe. But you get over it, and then eventually, you know, we follow the process, the lean, the running lean process by Ash Moyer. It's a great book, one of my favorite books for a startup. And he tells you like step by step, you know, what to do, what to say, what to ask, how to iterate, how to, you know, what templates to use when you interview customers. It's really great. So we follow that and it helps give structure. But I think overall, like being comfortable with ambiguity is, is really important for um, any, any founder. How did you get comfortable with ambiguity? Um, maybe it's like experience, maybe it's like personality, maybe it's like having confidence in a way. But I think for me, ultimately, um, you know, you, this is my third time doing a startup. So the first one, you know, he, it was through a program incubator, second one through velocity, whatever. So, and I also saw a lot of times with, um, you know, being at Lendup, seeing, you know, the growth of the company. And I think one of the things you, you build confidence is, you know, you look at these guys and they're great and they're really smart, but ultimately they're not, not that much more different than you, right? Like, um, they struggle with the same struggles, you know, getting customers, building product. 
and they just kind of work hard, think about it critically, and, and have a lot of confidence and think big. So I think that really helps with, with that perspective. And also, I think it's also a confidence in yourself, like in the sense of, you know, if you believe your decision-making process helped you get to where you are today, then, um, you know, you better believe that your process will help you get to where you need to be. Right? It's kind of like confidence in your own decision-making ability. And in terms of actually building the confidence, right. like, you know, when in the early days when investors are telling you no, does that, like, in in one perspective, it could be a hit on your confidence when people are not giving you money, like they're rejecting you, or if customers are not choosing to do the product. How do you handle that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. I mean, fortunately, my co-founder handles more of that. I think he hears more no's than, than I do. But yeah, I think it's just part of being a founder, being resilient, you know, never giving up and um, sort of, you know, having confident, confidence in the data. Right. And being data driven about it. Like if you know you're getting customers, you're growing, like, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, somebody says no, because, you know, deep down that you're building what people want. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my past guests have been CEOs um, or like chief of marketing. And so you're actually, I think, probably the first CTO on the podcast. And so for you, then as a CTO, like where where's the boundary between the CEO and CTO? Like, where do you draw it in terms of what you as a CTO? are responsible for yeah i think for me i'm actually pretty involved i I think myself more as a co-founder right in terms of doing what's needed to get the job done so i actually do like um a lot i like a lot of strategy a lot of you know product uh, a lot of like um beauty stuff yeah so i think it's just doing what you need to get the job done for me it's the lines like pretty loose um obviously you have uh, you want to work together and stuff you you don't want to overdo work um but ultimately like for me it's about what matters the most and you know i'll help out with fundraising i'll help out with pitching i'll help out with some bd stuff uh you know talk about strategy yeah it's it's all sort of together and then on the technical side because you know it is it is still a very technically intensive product that you guys are building how in the weeds do you get do you like do you enjoy going deep in um like i know you're you you, know, you must enjoy the theoretical side enough to do a master's <laughs> well i i'm not really a purely academic guy academic guy i think um for me i like you know kind of seeing results and creating things and in terms of getting deep in the weeds i think that's something i used to do a lot when i was the company was smaller but now i probably code less than 10 percent of my time a lot of time spent on like code reviews architecture process a lot of people stuff like uh, how do i level up my team how do i build the right team how do i structure them in my way how do i make sure people are motivated how do i um, you know, hire the right people. So a lot of time spent on people and process. Oh wow! And honestly, when you say that, it, like, I'm su- the fact that I'm surprised by it is weird, but because it just seems like yeah, that makes sense. And then for you, then in that kind of day to day, and also like in this kind of role that you are in, you know, Elon Musk talks about how when you're found when you are a founder of a company or a co-founder, it's like you're eating glass, like you're chewing glass. When when does it feel like you're chewing glass? Oh, wow. I never thought about that way. Um, that's kind of rough. Uh, I hope I never have to chew glass, but uh, I think, you know, sometimes they, sometimes it can be tough uh, in terms of, um, like, you know, some things not going the right way when you have to make a tough, you know, hire or fire call. Uh, or sometimes you lose a customer, lose a sale. Sometimes you didn't get the, you know, funding you wanted so I think those are those are tough moments but luckily I think for me we've been pretty fortunate in our journey I think we're both pretty optimistic and, and people and yeah you have ups and downs and sometimes you know one day you're like oh man um, our biggest partner is going to shut us down the next day you're like wow I just doubled my revenue right so you can get a lot of swings but I think by being more sort of emotionally sound um, 
I think it helps us deal with that. And so then on that topic though, then is there, but when you're actually in the moment of things, right. sometimes it can feel like life and death. Like it can feel like oh, if we don't, if we don't hit this target or if this investor doesn't say yes, it's all going to be over. Looking back, like what, what moment kind of sticks out where when you were in it, you thought, oh God, this, this is so tough. I can't believe this is so tough or like it's not working out. But in hindsight, you're like, I can't believe we sweated over that. Um, I think honestly, to be honest, we've been really lucky with our journey with Snap Travel. I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a well-known need. It's a big market. Um, there are some moments which is like, it's a really competitive market. But we've been able to work around that, you know, figure out our ways, learn, learn our lessons and make that work. So I think overall, we've been really fortunate. There hasn't been like a huge moment. And maybe one thing was before our Series A, we were like, okay, should we, we, had, a, we had an op- opportunity to hit a big milestone, like I think a million dollars in sales. But we weren't on tra- we weren't going to get there in time for uh, a big conference we're part of. So we thought, okay, is there a way, is it worth it to spend you know, an extra 20K on buying extra ads to make that happen for this big announcement, right? And that was kind of, I guess, a bigger decision where it's like, do we want to spend that much money that fast? And I was like, you know what, this is makes sense because the return you get on this is you know way more worth it and something that we should uh, do. Hmm. I'm guessing you, con- you continue to leverage checklists all the time. <laughs> I guess in a way. <laughs> and it's it's pretty cool. Like I, I also learned that you you are a uh, Forbes thirty under thirty for consumer technology. So belated congrats. Uh, oh, that's thank a, you. that's a big milestone. And I'm just curious on that process. Like is it like I'm imagining is it um is it like a process where they like send you this beautiful envelope in your mail and say, Hey, you've been selected? Uh, no, not not quite actually. I think um Forbes um that list is actually genius marketing because it's actually not 30 people in 30 it's 30 people in like 30 categories and like three three uh regional awards right so you think you're talking about like a couple thousand people a year right and i think about this way uh, you know Forbes doesn't give you anything they don't give you a plaque they don't give you an award they don't give you like a freaking uh, you know envelope they just give you this virtual thing and then the people on this list usually have some of, of a clout right so they'll share you know the forbes and so it's a whole like it's a great marketing thing for forbes wow. and i mean don't get me wrong i, I still appreciate it <laughs> and whatnot but uh, yeah i think it's a genius move by forbes to kind of you know build that list stay on top of mind and to obviously celebrate you know achievements and whatnot but yeah it's a 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 smart move so then it's not something like you, did you apply for it? Yeah, you do apply for it, but it was a pretty simple application process. Okay. And then you just put it in, you just see how they judge you. <laughs> That's pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> do you feel like your life has gone much different after that? Uh, not really, to be honest, because I, I don't talk about it that much. Um, I think for me, it's still focused on building the business, like doing the things that matter, you know, uh, doing the day-to-day, building a great team and, and building a good business. And so then on, when you think about it, like on, on this journey of like building this company, what, like nowadays, what really like motivates you to do this? Um, yeah, I think a lot of it is just fun. It's really fun building a company, um, you know, building things at scale. We have like over 3.5 million users now, um, right? And I think just seeing things at scale, things seeing things work at scale and then pushing the boundaries, like doing flights, you know, hotels, tours, and activities, and all these things. And that's really exciting, seeing the new sort of new horizons and new ideas and verticals. What about it? Like, what, what about, like, is there a specific thing that excites you more? Is it the number of lives you're impacting, number of users? Mm. I don't know if there's, like, one specific thing, but I think it's just uh, the fun of building something, continue to build stuff and create new, you know, do new things of value and, you know, also do, 
um, new strategy. Like it's kind of like playing uh, like chess, you know, it's like high dimensional chess where you can move different pieces. You only have so many resources, but it's like, how do you allocate? And then when you make a bet and it pays off, it's like pretty exciting. And in chess, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a win, right? You, there's a game, there's an end of the game. Right. Do you, what is the end for this game? Well, I think, you know, it's a standard, like, you know, corporate, like it's like a corporate ladder, right? You become a VP or whatever for startups, you, you exit, right? You raise a bunch of money, uh, A, B, C, D, and then you either exit or you IPO. And it's the same thing. Hmm. But I'm guessing you, do you, do you put much weight into that on a day-to-day? Um, not on a day-to-day. I, mean, I think it's important to build the right relationships and to create equity value. But, you know, day-to-day, it's a lot about still building and creating a product and value. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you kind of, hit upon this this last final legs of the interview i'm curious if you had to pick the third most influential person in your life who would that person be um third most influential person oh that's pretty hard I don't even know how to stack rank that. Does it have to be a third? It can't be like one of the three. <laughs> well, then tell me the three. Yeah. Oh what, who are the three? Oh my goodness. Oh, this is pretty hard. I... Like I can, maybe I can give you one of the three. That's probably a little easier. Okay. Um, give me one of the three. <sighs> yeah, I, I think probably my... Um, my indirect boss or the founder of um, Lendup, um, I think I learned a lot about how to build a story and how to tell a compelling story because I got the chance to work with the CEO and you know he, he was very much about how do I how do we create a alternative to payday loans that were socially responsible and helps the customer and how do we build a story and brand around that. So everything they did uh, around the um, the startup was about you know how do we make um, you know, sort of lending for people who we had access to little or no credit uh, better uh, and just the way that he you know convinced the story he was uh, building the team and the way he pitched investors I think that was just really motivating and, and it was really also inspiring too because I realized you know there's nothing uniquely special or he's, I mean he's a smart guy but he's not like a you know wizard right and everything he's doing was sort of the day-to-day tasks but it's not like there was there wasn't any um, uh, special magic and you know, just kind of seeing him working with them seeing him day to day that was really really inspiring and it also kind of gave me the confidence to build a startup um, and think big because I think they were always thinking about big taking on the big you know competitors change the way people do things and not being afraid to do something differently and I think having seen that perspective and seeing a company grow from you know seed round to um, you know, series A to like you know now like I don't know D or E or maybe uh, that's super inspiring and on the topic of thinking big, then what's what's the big thinking for Snap Travel? Yeah, I think for us, it's you know how do we get to a billion in in sales? Um, and I think you know, travel is a big enough space where you can make it. It's definitely possible to make that happen. But yeah, continuously think big about how we can get there. Uh, how do we scale? How do we move fast? You know, I think we and we always been thinking globally. Like most of our customers are outside of Canada. Like ninety percent or ninety five percent outside of Canada. We book hotels all over the world, like in over 200 countries. So I think the idea is how do we build a global brand from day one? And you know, we want to com- we do want to compete with the other brands like Expedia, Booking, whatnot. It's just uh, how do we keep 
you know, pushing ourselves, thinking big, and move fast. And is there a particular, is there a belief that you have that you think goes against conventional wisdom? Mm. Yeah, this is like the Peter Thiel question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he I think he uses that question a lot in his interviews too, like, or he used to at least. Yeah, people probably like expect it now. <laughs> um, let me think. Let me think. Um, yeah, I, I I think some of my thinking on the margin is is a little bit. I, I, mean, I think different. I think a lot of people think, and most people probably think in absolutes, like, oh, this is uh, you know really expensive, or this is really cheap, or this is um, you know a lot of effort. But when you think about things on the margin, it really changes. You know, like for example, uh, we were spending 20k, uh, in, you know, in low return ad spend to get to a million sales for the milestone. And in one way, you could say that's kind of, you know, a bad spend because you're spending all this money. It's a you know expensive spend. But if you think about the margin, it's, well, I'm spending 20k to raise like eight you know million dollars, right? So that's a very good spend. And obviously, there's a confidence interval, and you gotta justify your confidence, and whatnot. But I think that's something that, for me, as uh, is something I always think about. And then, really, no matter the amount, and and sometimes it kind of kind of comes back to bite me. Like for example, like you know, this price of like milk went up like you know fifty cents, but it's actually like twenty percent. Like what the fuck? Why did you go up twenty percent, right? But it's only fifty cents. So sometimes it kind of gets me. But a lot of times, when it comes to big numbers, you kind of it helps you kind of keep keep your thinking uh, and and. If you think about to talk to any any economist, really, it's it's life. A lot of it is on the margin. If you think about you know maximizing your utility curve, it's about finding that optimal point, and, you know, where you're spending just the amount of time or money or effort and maximizing your utility and whatnot. So I think it's trying to constantly optimize on the margin. I think it's something that's applying that to life and startups. I think is something that um, is something I, I I think might be slightly different. Yeah, no, I can definitely agree with that, and. So Henry, this has been a really fun chat, and I really enjoyed chatting with you today. Thanks for sharing the story. Like, is there anything that we didn't cover today that you kind of wish that we had? Um, um, no, I think it's good. This is a, yeah, it's fun. I enjoyed the conversation as well. Um, yeah, I, I think you know one thing I'd say that probably you know I talked to you about earlier is the traveling piece and living in different places. I think definitely you know any person, any young person, should be. A, have an opportunity to really be in somewhere the, where the best is in the world. Uh, like for example, if you want to be, you know, a, a banker, you probably should spend some time in Wall Street. If you want to be an actor, an actress, you probably should spend some time in LA. And I think just being where some of the best talent is, and to cut your teeth, I think really, really helps because you're in the major leagues. Like it's like you seeing what the best in the world do, and that really gives you know helps you build up your experience, your skills, your perspective. It really gives you, I think, that confidence to think big. Because you've seen how it's done, you know you've seen how the best in the world do it, and you realize that hey, this is not that different, um, and you end up pushing yourself to think more and do more, and, and I think that's invaluable. Yeah, awesome. And they can use Snap Travel to find their hotel accommodations when they go travel to um, those places. There we go. Yeah, there exactly. You go. <laughs> so then, how how can they find Snap Travel? Should they just go to the website? Yeah, just go to snaptravel.com, and yeah, you can check it out. All right, awesome. Thanks for the interview, Henry, and I really appreciate it. All right, thank you very much. Okay, take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully it also made you question 
the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com, and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, everything will still be free. It's just It would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right, thank you.